Uh, we come tonight, uh, we're looking at the doctrine of the church, and uh, tonight I want us to look at uh, the idea of the church uh, as the family of God, the family of God. Uh, if you're new, uh, there are outlines here at the table uh, to my left. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this um, time that we have together on a Wednesday evening for a roof over our heads and warmth with a common desire to study what your word has to say to us. Grateful that you have brought us into a company of your people, the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. We pray tonight again that you would uh, especially uh, minister to our hearts and souls and spirits as we think together of the blessings and the responsibilities that we have one toward uh, another uh, as, uh, as the people of God. And uh, pray now for your rich blessing as we, uh, uh, as we study together. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now turn with me to the first page. And um, we were looking at this last week. Uh, just some, some basic... Uh, 36,000 feet perspectives on uh, what the New Testament uh, teaches about the church. And there are some broad concepts. Uh, the church is the people of God, uh, the family of God. That, that's the theme this evening. Uh, another broad theme, I think, is the church as the flock of Christ. Christ as the shepherd of his sheep and what that might mean. Uh, and then last week we were looking at the third uh, of those uh, schemes, that is the church uh, as Christ's body. Uh, and I've actually lumped the three concepts together, though we will actually look uh, separately uh, at the church as the bride of Christ, for example. Um, but let's, uh, let's tonight focus our thoughts on the church as the people of God. And I pretty much uh, want to... Uh, focus on one particular passage tonight uh, rather than look at a whole s smattering of, uh, uh, of passages, uh, and that's the second half of uh, Ephesians, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verses uh, 11 uh, through 22, and uh, if you do have a Bible uh, with you or handy, Somewhere uh, you, you might find that useful. I've pretty much summarized uh, the, the basic uh, important statements in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 in the outline. Now notice, uh, notice first of all, skipping ahead in Ephesians to Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And the idea of uh, the church as the people of God, of course, it has an Old Testament uh, basis. 
uh, as, as Israel, as the covenant people of God, people called out uh, of bondage and called together. Remember when we first began to think about uh, ecclesiology, we were talking about a month ago now about uh, the meaning of the word ecclesia, the Greek word for church, um, related as it is to a Hebrew word kahal, to call, uh, to call out, the called out ones, uh, related as that word is to the word synagogue, uh, same, same family of, of uh, words. So the church has as the called out ones. We are the called out ones, called out of the world, called out of darkness, called out of a, a kingdom, a dominion where we render, uh, where we are uh, children of the devil, as Jesus says. Satan is our, is our father, and, and we, are, we are called into an, a new relationship as the people of God, as children of God, as children with a heavenly father. Uh, so there are some related concepts here of, of uh, the doctrine of adoption, uh, that now are we the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be uh, like him, for we shall see him even as he is. Or uh, in the passage that we're considering in Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 19, the household of God. Uh, the church is a household uh, with, with brothers and sisters and a heavenly father and an older brother, the Lord Jesus a household, an entity with some relationships and structure. The church as the household of God. Uh, strangers in paradise. Verses 11 through 13. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's, um, let's think about that. And there's something uh, very specific that Paul is saying in the context of the history of redemption in, in the first century. There's, there's a relationship here between Jews, the circumcised, and Gentiles, the uncircumcised. R remember who you were. And, and uh, he's addressing... He's addressing Gentiles in particular, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision Gentiles. Dogs. 
Uh, not your, not your uh, pooch that, that sleeps on the bed with you, but, but, uh, but street dogs. Uh, look, at, uh, look at all the things that Paul says about who they once were, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You know, one of the things about the Jews as the people of God was that they had an identity. And one, of, one aspect of that identity was that they were children of the covenant. They referred to God as the God who had covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had a, they had a lineage, they had a family, they had history, they had a story. But the Gentiles were outside of all of that. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. Without hope. Having no hope. What characterizes the Gentile nations? They had no hope. A hopelessness. The, the, the despair, the existentialism that often accompanies a sense of hopelessness. No structure, no reason, no reason for existence, no reason for a future, no reason to get up in the morning. There's no hope, a hopelessness. Without God in the world. Now, Paul elsewhere will say they knew God, but they, they, they suppressed him. They held that knowledge of God in unrighteousness in Romans chapter 1. And that manifested itself in producing other gods. Idol- idols. Idolatry. Dead in trespasses and sins. These are all descriptions now, of the, uh, basically, of the Gentiles. They were dead in trespasses and in sins. Walked following the course of this world. Uh, What governs the life and uh, thought and uh, dreams and hopes and ambitions of the, the man, the woman without God. Well, the course of this world, whatever, whatever happens to be on the agenda of this world. Uh, you, you look at it in its popular version, perhaps in uh, something like People magazine. You, I know you don't buy it, you read it in, in uh, uh, doctor's waiting rooms, uh, at your local dentist. Uh, don't tell me that you don't pick it up. I pick up half a dozen, flick through it. Feel a sense of sadness about the sordid lives of the rich and famous and the, and the, the glitz and glamour. And uh, they walked following the course of this world, their, their philosophy of life, governed by the, the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare would say. Following the prince and power of the air. Uh, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind. Uh, Living for the now, living for the flesh, uh, living for personal satisfaction and personal gain, but without purpose, without hope, without structure. Children of wrath. Wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. Under, not children of the promise, not the covenants of promise, but children of wrath. Of the reflex of God's holiness towards sin. That's who you were. Remember who you were. Without a sense of connection, a sense of family. Uh, the dysfunctionality that is so much a consequence of sin. You see it in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. What happens immediately when, when, when there's sin? There's, there's dysfunctionality. One is blaming the other. The culture of blame. The culture of passing the blame in the Garden of Eden. He made me do it. She made me do it. Remember who you are. But God, uh, that famous uh, adversative in Ephesians 2.4, but God. Remember, remember who you were, but God. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful and very famous sermon. It was one of his traveling sermons. Uh, but God. Uh, you can access this online these days, uh, free of charge, in the Martin Lloyd-Jones website, whatever that's called. Uh, if you've got 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes or so, uh, put it on, click it. But God, it's incredible sermon. talks about what they were, what they are now, the change that's come about as a result of the gospel. Uh, verse... Five, made us alive. We're looking at remember who you are. God has done something. God has intervened. And he's, he's made us alive. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and in sins. But, but God made you alive. He quickened you. Regenerated you. Brought you to life. And then in, in verse six, raised us up with him. Raised us up with him. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a sense in which the resurrection of Christ, because we are in union with Christ, we died with Christ, we we were raised with Christ. Think of how Paul makes so much use of that in Romans chapter 6. When he died, we were in union with him in federal union with him. And when he died, we died. So we are dead to sin. We have died to sin. And we've been raised to newness of life in Christ. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of us who are Christians, we have this, this double zip code. We have, uh, we have this zip code, 29201. But we have a zip code that is 
the heavenly places where Christ is above the clouds on any, any given day when, when you're in an aeroplane and you're on the ground and it's dark and it's raining and the wind is blowing and then you, you go up to 35, 36,000 feet the sun is always shining every day Pilots are always wearing dark glasses. You'll see, it. You'll see them. Some of them have them on their heads. Some of them have, have little things, bands, and they're, they're dropping down here, dark glasses, because in a few minutes' time, they're going to be in the sunshine. The, the glaring blaze of the sun. Oh, we've been raised with him. Now, that's true individually, but Paul is talking here in a, in a corporate sense. In Ephesians 2, he's not talking about simply about individuals, one here, one there. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about the church in Ephesus. We were raised with him. We, we sit when we, when we worship. Uh, one of the things I, I like to think about when I'm leading in prayer, for example, on a Sunday morning... Um, if I were to lead in the pastoral prayer, is to remind ourselves that we are worshiping not just, not just us and not just the church universal, the church worldwide, brothers and sisters in Christ, but the church that is above, the triumph, church triumphant. We are the church militant, but there's the church triumphant, those who have gone before us and are in the presence of Jesus. And we're worshiping together as a body, as a group, as, as, as one entity. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, we've been brought near, Ephesians 2.13. We were afar off, we've been brought near. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, there's a context to what Paul, Paul is talking about, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And that relationship was a relationship of division for many reasons, but not least because the Jews had all kinds of laws and regulations to think of the temple. There was a certain part of the temple in which a Gentile might, might be able to, to walk in and move around in, but there was a barrier. And beyond that barrier, Gentiles were not allowed to go. There was a physical barrier in the temple that kept Gentiles out. Well, that, that barrier has been broken down in Christ, in the gospel. And instead of, instead of there being two, Jews and Gentiles, there is now one, the one people of God, the one family. Uh, you remember how difficult this was for the church to, uh, to grasp and accept. Uh, think of Peter in uh, Galatians chapter 2 in Antioch. When the church begins to move out as the program in Acts has it beginning in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the church moves out and the home base is no longer Jerusalem. Predominantly Jewish. Jewish Christian now. 
but still Jewish, still very traditional, still, still looking over its shoulders at the past. And, and then you've got the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch to the north becomes the sending base for Paul's missionary journeys. A largely Gentile church. Peter's in Antioch, and, 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 and Paul is there. And there's a lunch, and uh, Peter is sitting at table with a bunch of converted Gentiles. And he's eating um, pork, ham sandwiches, and enjoying it. Uh, perhaps there's shrimp on the menu. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps coconut, fried coconut shrimp. Bang, bang, shrimp. <laughs> and uh, Peter is saying, this, this is good. Where's this been all my life? Uh, and, then, and then Paul says some, some, some heavyweights from Jerusalem, men of substance from Jerusalem, are visiting. Uh, the church in Jerusalem is concerned about what, what's happening in the rest of the church community and relationships between Jews and, and Gentiles. And there would, have been, there would have been those on the left and there would have been those on the right and there would have been those who would be very conservative. And when the heavyweights from Jerusalem come, Peter all of a sudden is eating kosher food. And he's no longer sitting at table with the Gentiles, but he's just hanging out with Uncle Shlomo. And Paul says he withstood him to the face. Now, I sometimes, uh, I'm a fan of Doctor Who. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? There's one. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Doctor Who. Love it. Love the low-budget special effects. And uh, two of you will know what I'm talking about now. Uh, that uh, there's a time machine. A TARDIS, it's a police box, old-fashioned blue police box with a light on the top. And, you know, he goes in and, and uh, you'll remember that inside is much bigger than outside. Reminds me of something of what Lewis said about the, incarna about the incarnation in Bethlehem. That the manger contained something that was larger than the whole world. You step inside this TARDIS and it's much bigger than the box on the outside but it can move about in space and time. There are lots of places I want, would love to go. I'd love to go to Geneva and be, be in the back pew when Calvin is preaching his sermons on Job. Would have loved to hear that. I'd have to brush up my French a little, but, but uh, I would just absolutely love to hear that. But I would love to go to Antioch. I want to see the showdown between Paul and Peter at high noon. And, uh, and, and Paul says, I withstood him to the face because what Peter was doing, according to Paul in Galatians, was a denial of the gospel because the gospel had reconciled Jews and Gentiles. That there was no longer, there was no longer Israel and the, and the rest of the world, but now there was one people of God that by faith in Jesus Christ, that that. That partition between Jew and Gentile had been broken down. The dividing wall of hostility 
And it was a wall that had all kinds of commandments expressed in ordinances. Thou shalt not eat shrimp. Thou shalt not have a pork chop. Now, that expression, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, is a difficult expression to fully understand. And, and the scholars here, a few of you, uh, just keep quiet um, for a second or two. It may be more complicated than what I'm saying now. But what I'm saying is at least a part of what I think Paul is trying to address here, the, 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 the legal barrier between Jew and Gentile, and that has been abolished, making one one new man. What is the church of Jesus Christ in the new covenant? It is one. It comprises Jews, but it comprises Gentiles who believe in Jesus. In place of the two. Now that's in part, and we'll get to this. This will all get very controversial, and this is where you'll all fall out of me, but but when we get to eschatology, when we study the doctrine of the last things, which, and after that I, I'll retire. Uh, but, but my view is, uh, my view is um, that there is no special significance for Israel under the new covenant. I know that will upset some of you. I don't see any special prophetic significance about 1946-47 and the formation of the state of Israel, for example. It doesn't mean to say I don't, I, don't, I don't accept it politically. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's no prophetic significance. There's not one purpose for the Jews and another purpose for the Gentiles. Now, there's a large school of theology. We were talking about it when we were talking about covenant theology that says that the New Testament church is a kind of afterthought. It's like plan B. God's main purpose is Israel. And Israel rejected uh, the covenant with Abraham it, Actually, in some of its forms, dispensationalist forms, it'll suggest that its acceptance of the covenant with Moses was a mistake. It shouldn't have done that. It should have just accepted the covenant. I'm not sure I've ever read in the Bible that they had a choice about it. But anyways, dispensationalism seems to say that, that it was a mistake. And then you have this, what they sometimes call, and, and if you've got your Ryrie Study Bible or your Schofield Notes with you now, just... Look down and confirm, but the New Testament church is sometimes referred to as a parenthesis. It's a sideshow. It's a plan B. There's plan A, and it's Israel, and there's plan B, and it's the church. Paul isn't saying that here. Paul is saying that the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. And there's one new man. A family, a household. Uh, look at uh, Ephesians 2.16, point number seven there. Reconciled. He hath made both one. I've broken it down a little. Negatively and horizontally break, broken down the dividing wall, abolishing the hostility, commandments, regulations. And then he explains it positively and perhaps vertically, creating one new man, reconciling both to God. Now, reconciling both to each other, but fundamentally reconciling both to God in a vertical sense. Now, this has huge implications. 
I trust you see what those implications are. Right? We'll, we'll talk about them in a minute. Right? The explanation of how we came to be who we are as, as the church, as the family of God, God's, we are God's workmanship. This is God's doing. We are God's workmanship. And then Paul says something, and I, I've got to say something about this in verse 17, in this, this pericope that we're just looking at tonight. He came and preached peace. Who's the he? He came and preached peace. Who's the he here? Well, it's Jesus in the context of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The he here is Jesus. He came and preached peace in Ephesus. Jesus came to Ephesus. No, he didn't. There's no record uh, in the Gospels of Jesus going to Ephesus. He was never really outside the land of Palestine, apart from the time he spent in Egypt as a boy. But Paul says he came and preached peace. How did he come and preach peace in Ephesus? Through the Apostle Paul. Through the Apostle Paul, by the ministry of his personal representative agent, the Holy Spirit, he came. When Paul preached, Jesus preached. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of my people. So, a summary, I think, I think in verse 18, a summary of all that Paul is trying to say, we all have access by one spirit. We all, as a as a, as a body, as a family, we all have access by one spirit. Now, what are the implications? The church is the family of God. Well, let's think of it. First of all, unity. The unity of the church. The oneness of the church. The oneness of the family. Now, the problem is that when some of you think of family, you think of disunity. You think of the, the problems that, that occur at Thanksgiving, you know, when Uncle Jim and Auntie Jenner are in the same room and there are going to be fireworks. And, and some of you have to spend, uh, and I, I know something about dysfunctionality, I'm not speaking outside my zone of uh, knowledge here, uh, but these occasions are often occasions when you try to keep people in different rooms. Or you try to get one in the morning and one in the afternoon and hope they don't meet up. At weddings and funerals and so on, we think of dysfunctionality. Now, Paul is thinking of the opposite here. He's thinking of functionality, the unity of the family, of the body of Christ. There is one family. Now, a second implication, and, and this is the principal implication of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, multiculturalism. This is very difficult. There isn't a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There isn't a southern church and a northern church, a Jerusalem church and an Antioch church. No, in one sense, there is. Paul talks about churches in the plural, and there, there's a church in Jerusalem, and there's a church in Antioch, and there's a church in Ephesus. He talks about churches in the plural. Individual entities that are church 
and, and, and they meet in a certain locality, in a certain geography, certain zip code. But then there's a sense in which Paul sometimes speaks of the church, the body, the family of God. There's a, there's a unity. Uh, sometimes this slur is uh, thrown out. It has, some, it has some force, of course, the segregated church on Sunday at 11 o'clock. But there is, there's, a, there's an implication here that the church is one family and it's not divided by race or education or, or age. No, there's a certain ageism. I never used to think about it until I reached the age that I am. I teach uh, students who are principally in their late 20s and so on. I, I could very well be their father. They often relate to me as though I am. And uh, there's, a, there's an ageism. The needs of the young people and so on. And churches can sometimes uh, pander to ageism. We, we've got to do something about the youth. And, uh, and we've got to make the church attractive to the youth. And it all, it all gets skewed out of shape. So that the church becomes a church simply for one generation. Uh, sociologists divide society uh, into baby boomers and, and Gen Xs and, and whatever else, whatever other divisions sociologists make. And the church simply panders to one of those, one of those groups. Oh, this is, the church is one body. That's a, that's a beautiful thing about, uh, about our own church. We need to be very conscious of it and and, and we need to, it, it, it doesn't survive without, without attention. That there are folks in their 90s. We think of John Greg McMaster, whom we buried last week. And just a couple of years ago, was sitting uh, in the balcony. You remember, uh, to my right as I would preach. And he would look over the balcony, make his way down the stairs. He was 98. We buried him just a few days ago. 100 years old, he's buried out here, just outside where we're meeting tonight. That's a beautiful thing. And then to see him, that broad grin as he watched uh, the little children coming forward for the children's address. That's how a church should be. Right? Not, just, not just pandering to one generation. We, we, we face this in, in the whole issue about worship and so on. And it's a very hot and difficult thing. There have always been worship wars. There were worship wars in the 16th century. And we have them today. And the last thing that we do in order to answer some of those very legitimate concerns, and some of them are very legitimate concerns, is uh, we've got to just cater to one group. We've got to keep the 70-year-olds happy. Or the 60-year-olds, that's me. We've got to keep that group happy, that decade. We've got to keep them happy. We must do exactly what they want. And forget about the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds and the 40-year-olds. Or the opposite, we've got to keep the 20-year-olds happy. And forget about the 60s, the 60s and the 70s. The unity of the family of God. The family. The church is one family. Oh, there's an obvious issue here about race. Uh, it's one we're still trying to address, for sure. And it's a complicated issue. And particularly as uh, we make distinctions in the church over doctrine and so on. 
And uh, it's, it's not, there's no simple solution here. But we have to be sensitive to it. It's not a church for Caucasians or a church simply for Hispanics. Now, now there, are, there are issues here and, and issues of language. Yes, and issues of certain traditions and so on. And, and some of the solutions that can be thrown out here are simplistic. But the idea, and uh, mentioned here John Piper's book, uh, Bloodlines, uh, which was published in uh, 2011, uh, I lifted just one quote out of it. The bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. Those are very, very important sentences with uh, huge implications and ramifications. And uh, as a church, and particularly as First Presbyterian Church in downtown uh, Columbia, in the capital of this of this state, uh, we have to be in the forefront and the vanguard of, that, of, the, of those statements uh, that were not seen simply to perpetuate uh, tradition and, and, and perpetuate something that is uh, a segregation uh, on, uh, on the Lord's Day. The blood of Jesus Christ, the gospel, has condemned that to the grave where it belongs. Right? There's a there's, a, there's a, an implication here that comes directly out of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We are, we, are, we are one family of God. Not two families, not three families, but one family. And we have to, we have to uh, relate to that in some form or fashion. Uh, that issue is before us. It is before us. And uh, we have the Erskine lectures that are coming in two weeks' time on a Wednesday night. Here in two weeks' time, an African-American brother will be addressing us. Uh, and and uh, Leon Brown, and uh, one, one thanks God for uh, the fact that God is raising up uh, an entire army of, uh, of African-American preachers who love the Reformed faith and who want to call themselves Presbyterian. That would not have been the case uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago, but it is increasingly the case now. Uh, so this issue is before us, and we have, to be, uh, we have to be biblical in the way that we address it and, uh, and, and hear what Paul is saying here about the family of God. And then uh, the Lord's Supper, another implication. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the richest moments in the life of the church when, when we gather as a family. You know, we do some, we do some quirky little things. Uh, we dim the lights when we're having the communion. I've never been in a church that does it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, 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 it didn't happen a couple of times. So I made sure that it happened. Right? There's, there's somebody in charge of a button that has to be pressed to dim the lights. Why do we dim the lights at communion? I have no idea, but it creates a kind of ambience. You know, we're, 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 we're wonderfully made, you and I. And uh, we are sensitive to certain things, and the fact that those lights are dimmed somehow or other reminds me of how we're a family. It brings us closer together, not least because I, you have to peer over somebody else's bulletin in order to read w w what's being said. But that moment when the uh, Lord's Supper is uh, being distributed, it's a family gathering. We, we don't do this. Our forefathers would have done this in Scotland, for example, for example. 
And uh, as a family, uh, in, in groups, uh, we would have gone forward to an actual table. To, we don't do that, of course. Um, but there's, there's, there is uh, probably no more climactic moment in the life experience, the worshiping experience of the Church of God than when we, um, when we celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Phones, feedback, sound. We were talking about it this afternoon. It just, just happened. Um, more and more, these phones are, are getting so clever, they're interfering with our sound system. It's happening more and more. It's, it's, the, it's not the fault of the sound system, it's the phones. But I needed to get this message to our, our media committee. We're sitting here on my left-hand side. The Lord's Supper as a family meal. I love family meals. I mean, who doesn't love thank? I mean, for all the dysfunctionality and Uncle Jim who has to be kept in another room, but for all of that, who doesn't love uh, Thanksgiving? It's one of the richest traditions in uh, American culture. I would, I would deeply, deeply miss um, Thanksgiving when family gathers. And some of you have a deep sense of family. Somebody stopped me this week. Wanted to know something about Welsh culture because suddenly they've, di- they've d- discovered that there's a long, distant uncle, Gwyn Roberts, who's Welsh. I felt, I felt immediately drawn to him. <laughs> we must be related in some way. There must be some genes that we have in common with each other. Well, we are the family of God. Yes, the King James says, uh, ye are a peculiar people. Yes, and I think that's sometimes true of us. That we, we, we can be peculiar for sure, but we are still family. Even the oddest among us. We're still, still family. There's a sense of belonging, a sense of responsibility that we have to each other. And that's my final thought here, family life, dysfunctional or caring and loving, and, uh, and that our family life together as a, as, a, as First Presbyterian Church in particular should be uh, one of caring and, and, and loving. When one member suffers, the whole body suffers together. That's part of the image of the body of Christ. And we're thinking here of the family. When somebody in your family is in trouble, Members of my own family this week have been in, in difficulty, health issues and a death in, on one side. And uh, what you do, you immediately reach out because they're family. They belong to you and you belong to them. And there's a sense of, uh, sense of connection and oneness. Well, this is a beautiful uh, uh, idea that Paul uh, speaks about. And he speaks about it in particular here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We just... In looking at it from 36,000 feet, but the church as the family uh, of God. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you brought us into a family. Just as, just as in one level of redemptive history, an entire race was reconciled to another, Jews and Gentiles in the gospel. And... Uh, Thank you for that, that moment in redemptive history when you demonstrated so very visibly what 
the gospel means and what the church means. That the church consists of all races and creed and 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 uh, those of different educational backgrounds and so on, uh, who've been brought into one family through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, through these wonderful doctrines of the gospel. And uh, we pray uh, tonight uh, that as a church we might reflect that more and more in our own relationships and our own understanding of what it means to be the family of God. So bless us, we pray, hide these things now in our hearts. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.